Not so great? A little volume. Thank you. As the uh, retreat has gone on, and we've had the good fortune of being able to meet with you one-on-one, we've gotten to um, both experience you, um, your unique individuality, uh, your... um, yeah, your unique individuality, your, you could say your, you know, each one of us has a kind of essence, has a, just a unique flavor. I have howiness. <laughs> the reason I'm thinking about this, well, not, beside, not just because I've been struck in meeting with you and experiencing your unique individuality and just in some ways in awe of what shows up uh, in the room with me. And of course, some of what shows up is the reflections that you're having, the stories that you've been telling yourselves, the views, and of course your your individuality has been shaped by a lot of what you've thought, but still what comes through is your version of howiness. And what made me think of this was I was, especially tonight, as I was having dinner with, at, with the staff and sitting with Noah, and he was reminding me of the years when my daughter Molly used to come to Yucca Valley and some of you in the room babysat her. And just for those of you who don't know, the babysitting was a voluntary yogi job. (laughs) And she had sign-up slots 45 minutes at a time and she would hold court one person after another. (laughs) And what Noah was remembering was when she had her babysitters and maybe even Noah, she piled up the mattresses in the room. There were like five mattresses in the room. She piled them up so that a few would be down on the floor and a few would be up high and they could jump. And she had the babysitters jumping from the top to the bottom. But it made me think about Molly, which I do a lot, and I miss her and my wife, Annie. And Molly was my, I often describe her as my guru. And she's my guru because I saw in her this essence, this molliness, as she emerged and from all of the causes and conditions that shaped her coming into being, you know, not not, uh, maybe a little more narrow version of what Wes reminded us of, how we all came to be. He so beautifully told us our story of how we came into existence in a way last night. And, you know, left us in that state of, of what does it really mean? Was that the last question? What does it mean? And I noticed that at that moment that he asked that question, all of my ideas dropped away. I don't know, did this happen to you? All of my ideas dropped away. 
And there was just quiet. The room fell into a quiet. And I think each person, and this may be a projection, an idea that I had, but each person fell into, into life. As Donald Babcock says, we ease ourselves into the boundless, right where it touches us. We repose in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. So I had the sense that everybody fell into this boundless, but, and each person returned to their version of molliness or howiness. They just returned to just that sense of basic beingness that could only be experienced because of your individuality, because you were born. So even though we're constantly pointing to that, that liberating insight of not-self, it does not mean that you don't exist. And when I think... <laughs> but I won't say that you do exist. <laughs> But when, I, when we reflect on Molly, or you reflect on yourself, even though Molly is a unique individual, has molliness, has that beautiful essence, Molly is made up of all the elements that are not so personal. Molly is made up of non-self elements. If you studied her body and you studied her mind, you would not find any Molly behind it. You would find nothing, nothing stable, abiding within that sea of changing conditions, of selfless conditions, arising and vanishing as they, as they do according to causes. But yet, in spite of our not-self experience and nature, we are as unique and individual as can be. And it is not our unique individuality. It is not your version of molliness or my howiness that is ever a problem for us. That is not an issue. That is what we fall into when we are mindful when we are left with that open question, what does it all mean? That's what we fall into when we are simply walking, simply eating, drinking, listening, speaking. <clears throat> if we are in touch with that immediate sense of aware presence, We are, I think I can speak for all of us, we are satisfied. In this moment even, if you just settle into being aware and present, very simple, not doing anything, maybe just for a little while, not going forward in your mind and not going backwards, just letting yourself 
And if you need to, use your body to find this living present. And when you do this, when you touch into this simple aware presence, do you need anything? Do you want anything? Do you even need to know what it all means? Do you need to know who you are? You could say that when we are able to just, you could call it be ourselves, which is what happens when we're simply engaging in life with full awareness. Everything we long for is granted. That which we search for at the end of the rainbow, there's peace in it. There's gladness. There's quiet. There's freedom. It's hard to find in real time that sense of the one who's, who feels bound. So that molliness is not a problem. We may not appreciate that each moment that we um, that we don't jump ahead and don't jump back. We were just here. Mindful, clearly comprehending that this is actually a powerful, a meaningful realization of the fruit of practice. So tell me, in your mind, or if somebody wants to speak out loud, what happens to you in that moment when you just let yourself be, and you don't look ahead and you don't look back? What do you experience? I've put out a lot of ideas. Anybody willing to say in this room, in the, into the silence? Satisfaction. Satisfaction. Stillness. I missed that one. Fullness. Fullness. Awareness. Awareness. So now that's not, <laughs> that was great, whatever it was. So that's not, that's not such an issue, is it? Now, how far did we have to travel to experience that? So this is not the issue, the simple sense of aware presence, falling into the just being ourselves. And when I say being ourselves, I don't mean the idea of ourselves. I mean, whatever the direct experience is. 
But as a Tibetan teacher, Dujim Rinpoche, said, we don't stay there. <laughs> we don't stay here. He says, isn't it true that after your last thought has passed and before the next one comes, is it not true that there is a vivid clarity? Unaltered from the very beginning, <coughs> natural primordial wakefulness, it's sometimes called. It's all these words. Now take away the words. But he says, suddenly a thought arises. And if that thought arises and it is noticed, that thought is recognized to be simply a, an aspect of that same aware presence. And it liberates itself, vanishes. But if that thought goes unnoticed, it spreads out, it begins to link together with other thoughts, and it spreads out into ordinary thinking, which is called, which he called the chain of delusion. Because in that little chain, in that little linking of thoughts, Who is the central star? We say, I am. But when we say, I am, we fail to recognize the I that arises in that thought is an imaginary version of you. You could call it a virtual version. And when that thought goes, goes unnoticed, you literally start dreaming that you are that one that is inhabiting that whatever the flavor is of that, of that dreamscape. Stay dreaming. It's human. It is absolutely human and amazing that we can do that. That that happens. That secretion of, of thoughts. That thought machine. We will continue to generate thoughts about ourselves. And that, that narrative that forms in our mind out of those thoughts is um, not an accidental narrative. It has within it the story of our existence, the story of our, our life, our our cultural history, our religious history, our family history, our racial history. It has everything in it. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to have a story about ourselves. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to tell that story. It's one of the ways that we connect in our lives. It's by telling our story. So in its 
in its essence, the stories of our mind, the stories of our life are what, they are part of the richness of this human, this human experience of being human and makes us really unique in a way that we can both think about things, reflect on things, plan things. But very often that narrative that plays through our mind because of the impact of so many of the conditions of our life, that narrative that plays through our mind creates a view about ourselves, a sense of ourselves. Remember, it's a virtual version of ourselves. The Buddha called it Sakaya Ditti, self-view. And as a view, it has no substantiality. It has no ultimate reality. It's a story. And often that story is bound up in the three poisons that we often talk about as the key cause of, of suffering in our life. Greed, it's often a story of what I want to happen. Or it's a story of, of aversion, anger, sometimes that powerful, righteous response to injustice, sometimes the, the response of ill will, of just wanting to harm. But that narrative often has a version of ourselves that is distorted, that is small, that is creating a feeling, because it always registers some kind of felt sense, it registers a feeling of collapsing, of insufficiency, a view that there's something wrong with me, something wrong in general, and something wrong with me. Remember, on present evidence, when we are simply mindful, we cannot find any evidence for that one to whom something is seriously wrong. That's maybe wasn't said correctly, but that's how I said it. We don't find that in real time. But to the degree that we spend a lot of time, and we do as humans, living in the versions of ourselves that play through our mind, especially those versions that, that uh, are um, insults, you could say, to the indescribable, at least the indescribable experience I have of you. Each person, that unique expression of life so obviously, in some way, it seems obvious that, that you're meant to be here. <laughs> How do I know that? You're here. <laughs> everything in life, all those things that Wes described, everything conspired for you to come into being. Everything at all time had to happen for you to happen. How could that ever be an accident? 
wrong. Yet somehow we move from that, that sense of just being ourselves, that, that expression of life into this view about ourselves. And since we're not going to necessarily stop this self-idea, this story of ourselves, then it is really an essential part of our practice to begin to see how this story shows up in our lives, how it comes to be. And we talk about, on the retreat, we talk about the thousands of thoughts that we have every day, and Jack spoke about 90% are likely repeats from the day before. I heard that it was 65,000. And we talk, and we normalize the fact that everyone is a thinking machine. But we often don't see what it is, what it is, what it is that gives rise to that little chain of delusion, that story, we don't see, and this is what's possible on a practice, in a practice period, we don't see that that thought gets in some ways secreted or generated by simple reactions. Of course, it depends on our body and our senses. As the Buddha said, within this fathom, Long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world. The cause of the world that we imagine in our minds. It also, within this fathom long body, lies the end of the world. And it also lies the path to the end of the world. And when asked whether you could reach the end of the world by, by going, the Buddha said, no, you can't reach the end of the world by going. But only those who reach the end of the world become free. So in our mind, we are going. We are going. That world that we create in our mind, we are going. And where are we going? And how, do we, how did we start going? Remember, we started out as human beings. And then somehow along the line, we ended up as people often describe us as human doings. And I always think of Amy Krauss uh, Rosenthal, the editorialist, who, who says that when anybody ever asks you how you're doing, you say busy. How is your week? Good, busy. Says, you name the question, busy is the answer. She says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, that's the knee-jerk response. She says, have people always been this busy? Were cavemen that, this busy too? I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I be, meet you by the fire next week? She says, I have a feeling it's because of the advent of coffee bars. 
and coffee's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing up. But she doesn't, she doesn't stop there. She says, as kids, our stock answer to every question is, you know, what'd you do at school today? Or what's happening? Nothing. <laughs> she says that, like youth, she thinks the word nothing's being wasted on the young. And that we, we need to reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing. So we see that outer manifestation of busyness and doing, but it all starts with the definition of being in a body. If you're born in a body, definition of birth is the leading cause of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, those feeling tones that we talked about yesterday. It's the leading cause of all kinds of things that are hard to bear, stress. Tension. Even the very pleasant things in our life produce a feeling. That pleasant feeling, if it is recognized as pleasant, we enjoy the pleasure. If it's recognized as unpleasant, we enjoy the unpleasant. We're able to be with it. If we recognize the neutral feelings in our life, when we have mindful attention, that neutral spreads out into a kind of balance and peace, sometimes equanimity. But if those feeling tones go unnoticed, part of what it means to be born, we have a lot of feeling tones, every single experience that arises at any one of our doors of perception, including the door of perception of mind, produces a feeling tone. When it's pleasant, it's followed by liking. Liking tends to be followed by wanting. Wanting tends to be followed by craving. That whole sequence of moving from a pleasant experience, which we have so many of, to the state of craving, happens very quickly, but it produces a kind of charge, a kind of tension. Once our body is in a state of wanting or craving, remember we talked about wanting and craving are fine if you notice them. They're the manure of our practice if you're able to attune to them. We don't make them wrong, we study them. But if if you were to tune in to what that state is, the state of wanting, maybe a more extreme state of craving, thirst, hunger, our body has at that point gone into a state of tension. And that tension has to release somewhere. And it releases, part one of the way it releases is to start to think. And what do we think about? We think of how to satisfy the desire that we're having. So it goes into strategizing mind. Planning mind. And just keep fantasizing. And part of the state of craving, 
that we often don't notice because the picture in our mind of something that's quite pleasant. And the thought of whatever it is produces a pleasant feeling. The underlying state, though, is, is a state of tension. I call it a state of suspended happiness. And then, because I'm in that state of suspended happiness, my mind is telling me, and we've all said it in different ways, my mind is telling me, I need that to be happy. I need to have that thing. I've very often told the story of being very comfortable 10 o'clock at night on Dolores Street in San Francisco back in the, in the 80s, third floor, many stairway apartment, so comfortable, and the image of an ice cream cone came into my mind. Somebody mentioned an ice cream cone last night. That, th that thought produced a pleasant feeling. Pleasant feeling was followed by liking, that liking very quickly because I was a little tired, followed by very strong desire, a strong desire fed into the thinking mind, the thinking mind then led into action, had the clothes on, <laughs> down the stairs, into the car, up to 24th Street, went to the ice cream parlor, gray, rainy evening, eat my ice cream, and then realize what I just did. <laughs> Literally carried along like a slave into a virtual dream of the person who the person, the hungry ghost in me that, with the little mouth and the huge stomach that had to fill that. And then I got there and that lifetime ended. That life ended and there I was on the street, embarrassed, self-conscious, and I had just gone on a, a virtual ride. And this is, where, this is what happens. So it starts with just a little charge that could have come from a thought, could have come from a smell, could have come from a taste. And very often on the retreat, it comes from knee pain, back pain, noise in the hall. Could be the thought of the meal, one of the main sources of entertainment for the day. One of my favorite teachers, Sri Nisargadatta, said, as long as we believe that we need things, and this is a belief that goes through our mind, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. In this way, pleasure unrecognized becomes a cause of distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience is that? The experience of being open, aware, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, 
of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things and discovery. Your true home is in this openness, this emptiness of content. And true happiness has no cause. And what has no cause is immovable. So when we follow that little sequence innocently, we deprive ourselves or obscure that, as Kala Rinpoche called it, that ever-present wakefulness and clarity. He says, you, you all, we all. He says, you're the Buddha. Even in this very room. Why don't you see this? He says, because there's a veil such as the belief that you're not the Buddha, that you're this separate individual, that you're this person that you imagine yourself to be. It says if you can't see through this instantly, or you have to see through it gradually, but if you've tasted it just a little bit, and I have confidence that every person in this room has tasted a little bit, then you can refer to it. Refer to it, and that's refer to that ever-present capacity of wakefulness and clarity. This is what you're actually training here. Half of our practice is, is recognizing this, what could be called the, the natural happiness of being awake. Half of our practice is getting used to this. Realizing the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, who says, you, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home. Reclaim your heritage. He goes on in that same passage to say, and be passionate about that and share it with others. The face of that kind of, of simple presence when we get used to it is, is affection. I, I sense now, you know, I'm, when I talk about these things, the room comes a little bit more alive. I feel I don't have, I'm not, my mind isn't back there. It's not ahead somewhere. I'm right here with you. And all of a sudden, it feels very intimate. And I didn't do anything except I just, you know, the last thought went away for a little bit, and the next one, what, whatever I plan to say next, it hasn't come yet, and here we are. This kind of immediacy is split second away. But again, we don't stay here. Our practice, we have practiced more living in our virtual reality. And the beautiful thing about the cultivation of mindful attention is that we put that virtual version of ourselves, we put that wanting mind, and that's one of the versions that that's one of the ways that we proliferate in what I want to happen. 
We put that to good use in our practice. We let it be the cause of our wakefulness. We say, wow, that's the wanting mind. We may, you may have underestimated the, the power of that little shift from being carried along by that wanting to noticing it. So you can use anything to enhance that sense of being here, being aware of what it is that's happening in my mind. And I think that the wanting mind, the proliferating mind of wanting, is, for most people, that is the, one of the top tunes. Because, as you know, every day we are, we are taught to acquire experience. I debate about reading this, but it's, it's so hard-hitting and straightforward, I thought that you might appreciate this. This is from Sogyal Rinpoche. Sometimes I think the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. That's the wandering, searching. And its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead to more misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And what does samsara hold out to us to drink? but a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. Sorry. <laughs> so we want to be able to notice the, the effusion of thoughts about things that we want. We want to be able to recognize it as the wanting mind wanting. As the, the reason I use this word effusion is that I was looking for the definition here. The definition of papancha, which uh, was introduced this morning by Trudy, is some traditional ones that you might want to, just so you know, just to normalize it, this is you, this is us. The unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. That's one of them. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an infusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. For some reason, I find that funny. <laughs> but the bare data of cognition 
It's amazing that the whole of our life, the whole of our life happens right here. Not one of us has ever left the present moment. Not one of us has ever had more at any time than a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought, or feeling. That is the totality of our life. The drama that we experience is an embellishment. It has to do with the view about ourselves and about our life that plays in our mind. Now those six sense experiences, they're pretty amazing. Just being able to see you right now, how amazing is that? Just being able to hear, and this is something we start to, to realize is so precious and we're literally sleepwalking or dreaming through our lives and missing the most amazing place there is, which is this wakeful presence where we can actually experience the awe of being able to talk to one another. Well, not on this retreat. <laughs> to be able to, to, to taste the food, see this exquisite sunset this evening. So this effusion of commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition, it, does, it happens in many different forms. A lot of our thoughts, and I think Wes alluded to this, a lot of our thoughts, one of, somebody did, are about our body. A lot of our identity view, the story that our mind tells is about our body. Identity is very much tethered to our body. And what is true about our body? It's pretty fragile. It ages. It gets sick. It dies. It's not exactly a reliable place to have one's identity bound up in. So it leaves us in a state of insecurity. Our identity is also bound up in, in that story of time. Like I said, none of us has ever left the present moment. We only imagine that we do. We have created a version of ourselves that is someone, and it's great to notice this, and by noticing it doesn't make it wrong. It is a distortion if you believe it, if you live out of it. But we've created a version of ourselves in our mind where we have come from the past, we're passing through the present on our way to the future. Now where is that now? 
Where is the past now? Where is the future now? Where is even the present now? We begin to get a sense of this on a retreat, both the fading away of this concept of time. And what a relief. Because as soon as I believe that I'm on my way to the future, the future holds, especially when it's something I want or don't want, afraid of, worried about, the future becomes the holder of my happiness, my promise. And this doesn't mean to be, not to be hopeful. But I want to be, know that I am, I'm whole now, that I'm not going to, I don't, I don't want to postpone being well till some other time that never arrives because time is always now. So that to the degree that I, that I live in that view that the best is up there, out there, my body, this body goes into a state of tension, freeze, suspended happiness. Notice that tension, as Wes mentioned, that waiting for the bell to ring. The bell becomes the secret to happiness. And the bell rings and we go, ah. Oh. Now we think the bell actually gave us the relief. But what really gives the relief is the release of that state of waiting. Of the release of that trance of time. So that story of myself in time, if I get lost in it, it creates a lot of insecurity. Because what if the future doesn't turn out the way I want it to? And that creates so much uncertainty. And that leaves, creates more anxiety. And what, is, what happens, what's the effect of anxiety? Usually. Usually we don't just feel our anxiety, meet it with loving awareness <laughs> and clear comprehension. Usually that anxiety, out of love for ourselves, we go searching for something to give us relief. Where do we go? Into our effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. We, we leave ourselves. We become disembodied. And then when, when just to the further elaborate on how far we can um, how far we can become disconnected from ourselves is that not only do we start to feel anxious, but then we get mad at ourselves for feeling anxious. Get mad at ourselves for feeling anxious about having a body that's vulnerable. We get mad at ourselves for being anxious about the future when, it's, when we can't help our imaginations spinning. And then we get mad at ourselves because one of our reactions is a lot of discursive thinking. And so instead of embracing 
the experience of our vulnerability that we find in this immediate unfolding present. Meet it with kindness. Our tendency is to go off into flights of fantasy. So what we want to do here, ideally, is we want to train to be able to notice every arising experience, including the arising of our self-view. Notice how we're planning. Notice how we're creating an identity of ourselves in time. Just so you, um, some of you may have heard this before, but the, you know, we were talking, we've talked a lot about, the desi about desire and wanting. And it's so much embedded in, both instinctually and it's become refined to a, to a because we do live in such a, a consumer society, it's, we've found ways to experience pleasure un, unknown in the history of the world. But some of it is embedded, some of it both springs from as an embedded in our language and the way that we think about things. And we can notice that. We think a lot about when. We use the word when a lot, and we use the word want a lot. There's a, a culture in Burma, in the coast of Burma, called the Mokans, that don't have the word when and want in their vocabulary. So you can imagine if you, even for moments, you remove the word when, and you remove the word want, just notice how you feel. When is he going to finish speaking? <laughs> Now, remove that for a moment. Or I want to go to sleep. Remove that for a moment. And then the other tribe that I was thinking of is where our mind is in that, that kind of dreamscape of that tunnel of linear time. I'm going from the past on my way to the present, on the way to the future. That's that whole picture is a picture, it's a story. But there's another culture that puts the future in front and the past behind in their language. Wait. <laughs> future behind and the past in front, because you can see the past. Thank you. I'm so happy people are still listening. <laughs> so the last piece I'll talk about since I'm running out of time is, is the other very common way that we take birth in our thoughts. And that and that rather than taking birth in our thoughts, we can notice them. They were, it's been included many, in many talks, but it is a, um, a, quite a liberating experience to be able to notice the comparing mind instead of uh, identifying with it, instead of being carried along by it. It is one of the tendencies of mind that is the that is one of the most 
embedded in our psyches. It is the, probably the, that conceit of above, below, equal is one of the last qualities to become weakened according to the, the model of, of awakening. It's one of the last fetters or tendencies that, that bind us to, to suffering, bind us to the wheel of, of endless searching is this quality of, of comparing mind. Of, and so we, we have to, at some point in the span of our practice, not just know that that happens, but to start tuning into it as it occurs, moment by moment, comparing mind comparing, being able to to have a sense of humor about it as well. Because it is the because of our insecurity, pride has no it has no limits. One of the ways that we try to soothe ourselves is to try to defend and protect and build up and inflate this view of ourselves. I brought along a, a small example from the internet of an, an example of the extent to which the comparing mind can reach, you know, reach the extent of absurdity. In June, after the British musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who wrote four hours, 33 minutes, or otherwise known as 273, no, four minutes, 33 seconds, 273 seconds of silence, the representatives of, this, of the composer John Cage threatened to sue the group, <laughs> the planets, for ripping Cage off, <laughs> but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 <laughs> seconds it thought had been pilfered, said Mike Bat of the planets. Mine is a much better silent piece. I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. Well, since I've run out of time, I think you get a, a sense of how far from your version of molliness we can travel in our imagination. But I hope, hopefully you also know that you are only a split second, a half breath away. And it is worthwhile, at least we think, for you to give yourself entirely to, to right here. And it has two effects. One, you get used to your essential wholeness, individuality, whatever you want to call it, just your beingness. Two, it creates the frequency, the continuity of your aware presence, creates a power of mind for you to be able to see what your mind is doing more clearly. But as Rumi 
recommends in his poem entitled Two Shops. He says, live here. Live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere. And you have eyes that judge distances. How high, how low. Comparing mind. You own two shops. And you run back and forth. Try to close the one. That's a fearful trap. Always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You're the free swimming fish. So as Wes reminded us, we came from fish, <laughs> and we can return to being free swimming fish. So let's sit quietly. from Derek Walcott. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Thank you for your kind attention. Have 30 minutes to swim mindfully, walk mindfully, and we'll have final sitting of the night. Thank you again. Thanks for your practice. Wait a second. We have a, an announcement. Oh, wait a second. Wait. <laughs> Two announcements, actually. Sorry. Suspended um, happiness. Suspended happiness. Um, <laughs> From the meetings with you, we know that um, some of you are waking up earlier and staying up later than the hall is open. And we were wondering if, how many of you would like the hall to stay open later than it normally stays open? One. One. How many? Of several, a few people. Would, 
Um, one of you be willing to take up the responsibility of keeping it open as late as you want it to be open and then lock it because of the delicate stereo equipment in here. It's necessary for it to be locked if nobody's awake. But by finding a volunteer to do it till the end of the retreat who wants to stay awake every night and take that responsibility, then they can, we can keep it open for everyone. Does somebody, would somebody like to do that? A hide no, it has an alarm and everything. It's kind of complicated. So it, has to, it kind of has to be a one training thing. So if somebody wants to do it, we're willing to do that, but we need to keep the security. The other thing is um, getting up earlier, people who get up earlier. Are there earlier people who would like it to be open earlier than it is? And the same situation obtains that it can be open earlier if someone will come and see Franz and be willing to be trained, but take the responsibility of doing it. Um, you know, whenever it would be whenever you were doing it. Like you don't have to say you're getting up at 2.30 every day, <laughs> but it's just earlier than it is now, which is about five or 5.30. Anyway, that's announcement number one. And number two is I'm a reminding person, reminding of myself that we're asked to wear socks in here, which I forgot because it's getting hotter. And the reason is because they don't want the carpet to start to smell, but when you know the reason, then it makes you more like interested in wearing them. So <laughs> I apologize for being a bad role model, but um, anyway, uh, that's a reminder. But anyway, so earlier, earlier late risers, see Franz. And the other thing is that the Friendship Hall is open also as a kind of shelter all day and night. Some people are sleeping in there, but um, if you are sort of up and you feel like you can't, you don't want to stay lying awake in your room the entire time, then the friendship hall is not locked. So we're hoping that you know that we really care for those of you who have um, just difficulty sleeping and that with the accommodations. That's what we're hoping to communicate through these offerings. Like we can't really do everything to make everything easy, but we can respond to the sense of trying to help. That's all. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.